Hey everyone, welcome back to Upstate Anecdotes, the Shy Institute for Sustainable Communities podcast. My name is Caroline Singleton. I hope you guys got a chance to listen to my conversation with Susan France. It really opened my eyes to the issues that real people in Greenville are facing every day. One thing that Susan and I didn't explicitly talk about, but that is often interrelated with the issues she mentioned, is food deserts. Now, you've probably heard this term before. I'm pretty sure the first time I heard it was in middle or high school when we were doing a service project around food. The term is exactly what it sounds like. At its most basic level, it's an area where there is high poverty and low access to food. The food desert debate is a widely known topic. In our country, it's often used as evidence for policy changes and introductions of grocery stores in certain areas. However, a lot of people, advocates, people on the ground, etc., are worried about health disparities because poverty is often linked to poor health. So the argument goes something like this. You bring a grocery store to an impoverished area and people eat healthier. Problem solved. Well, as it turns out, that might not be the case. I reached out to Dr. Ken Cobb to find out more. My name is Ken Cobb. I am uh, chair of the sociology department here at Furman University. I'm getting ready to start my 15th year. Dr. Cobb was actually my professor for sociology my first semester, freshman year of college in 2019. I think he might have actually been my very first college class. Originally from New Orleans, he says that this is why food has always been a huge part of his life. Dr. Cobb got his Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Bates College, a Master of Arts in Sociology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, as well as a PhD in Sociology from UNC Chapel Hill. He is also the author of two books. The reason I reached out to him was because I remembered from class that he had researched food deserts in Greenville. His first book is called Moral Wages, The Emotional Dilemmas of Victim Advocacy and Counseling. The second book is Retail Inequality, Reframing the Food Desert Debate. Published in 2021, it documents the struggles of two historically black neighborhoods in Greenville, Southernside and West Greenville. My first book was on, um, and it was an ethnography of what it's like for men to work inside a rape crisis center. What links that to my current research is that I try, um, I interview people, I observe them and interact with them in their everyday life and I try to see the world from their point of view. When I was looking for a new subject to study, uh, I was in the city of Greenville, and I had done a number of uh, community initiatives to help uh, one particular neighborhood called Southern Side with a, a bridge that was about to be torn down. And they needed some help, and so I got some Furman students to do a survey, a door-to-door survey, and we collected a little bit of data that helped equip the neighborhood with some information and evidence to document their needs and wishes that they could bring to their local policy leaders. That was a long fight, took us about seven or eight years to finally get that bridge rebuilt. But in the course of that, whenever I asked people about what other problems uh, or what other issues were facing them that they would like help with, the number one answer without hesitation was always, we want a grocery store. And so I started interviewing people about how and why and where they get their groceries. I interviewed people that had no problem. They had cars, they had disposable incomes. And I talked to people who were basically dependent upon free or donated food on a day-to-day basis. And so uh, I just tried to 
to get inside their heads and to kind of understand what are the challenges that they face, what are maybe some untapped resources that they have that other people aren't aware of. And so that's how I got where I am now. I was excited to speak with Dr. Cobb for a few reasons. One of them is because he's a sociologist. The way that he views the world is very different from myself. He takes an approach that's very personal and very real. It moves past the facade of maybe what's seen in the media or what we talk about in class discussions or at the dinner table. He's getting down to the real essence of what it feels like to be in a situation of what the media likes to call food deserts. But if you've read his book, you'd come to understand that in reality, it's not about food deserts. It's what he calls retail inequality. Now, the term retail inequality and the namesake of the book, it'll be explained. But to get there and to understand Dr. Cobb's argument, we first have to start with food deserts. So in your book, you kind of talk about the like widespread notion of food deserts mm-hmm. and that that's not in reality often the case versus retail inequality as the namesake of the book. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that a little more? Because I don't All know right. if it was just me that I was confused or if the question is kind of how and when did food deserts happen as All a right. term? Well, the term itself was coined, strangely enough, in Scotland in the early 90s. Um, It was sort of hidden in a small bureaucratic report about a public housing project with some residents who were upset because their local grocery store had moved away, had closed. And the lack of grocery stores in some areas and not others is not a global phenomenon, but a common phenomenon, especially in the developed world. Dr. Cobb says that the supermarket industry has changed a lot. About 60 or so years ago, city centers were the way that everyone got their goods. There were mom-and-pop grocers and individual shops like bakers, butchers, and pharmacists. That meant that you would have to go to a few different places to get your needs met, but it was close together, so distance wasn't really an issue. You might still encounter this today in a small town, but for the most part, it's gone. Dr. Cobb says it's because of a movement in the 70s that brought suburban development. After World War II in the United States, we made a decision in this country to move away from prioritizing city centers. We spent a lot of money on big highways and suburban development. These developments required a lot of infrastructure. They required not just roads, but also utilities, power, lights, water, to enable people to live outside of city centers. And they they could either travel back into the city center to work and then come back to the suburb to sleep. But this had profound effects for the retail industry because the population was moving. And so businesses require a certain amount of people, a certain amount of population density in order to survive. And there was an outflow of people from city centers into the suburbs in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s. And it wasn't just suburban sprawl. Dr. Cobb also identified that the transformations in retail worked jointly with this mass movement of people. This is the emergence of big box stores, your Walmarts, Lowe's, Home Depot, etc. And they were extremely competitive in terms of pricing. Smaller stores that were left in the city centers couldn't really compete on price at that level. So you have this big population shift out of city centers. You have retail that's following it, going into big box stores located nearby highways where they can get easy access to large tractor trailers and 18-wheelers and stuff like that. And the, the cost cutting on the periphery, on the edges of cities, undercut and basically bankrupted a lot of the small mom and pop stores. And so you had city centers in the United States where you still had lots of people living there, not as dense, but still dense, that were left without 
the basic retail amenities that they had grown up on, as well as that their parents and grandparents had grown up on. And so the term food desert, although it was coined in 1990, sort of set in motion a whole variety of different governmental policies to try and get grocery stores and healthy food back into these city centers. There has since been a large debate over whether we should even call them food deserts, because there's lots of food in the food deserts. There's junk food, fast food, convenience food. So some people have suggested using the term food swamps to characterize that. Like Dr. Cobb is explaining, on the surface, the issue of food deserts might seem simple. But what we can decipher from him is that it's much more complicated. There are niche situations that create complexities within the broader issue. There's also sometimes there's, there's food available, but it's very high priced. Uh, it may be for a niche market, uh, let's say a high-end Whole Foods or a small-scale um, boutique grocer that might sell luxury items. That might be within reach of people who live nearby, but they're effectively priced out of it. So you can kind of see it, but it's not really accessible to you. And some people refer to those as food mirages. More recently, the term food apartheid has come along to identify some of the systemically racist policies of the past that created food deserts. And this goes back to the creation of the suburbs. And so when we built these large roads into the suburbs, and many of them were exclusively white at the time, And we also took those resources to build those roads and infrastructure for the suburbs, and we took it away from the city center where lots of people of color and black residents were living, and they wanted their neighborhoods improved, but public policy had shifted towards subsidizing the suburbs. And so those policy decisions had very disproportionate racial effects, and they helped exacerbate racial inequalities. And that's the term food apartheid. Mm -hmm. I argue that the issue is bigger than food, What Dr. Cobb says next is key to his research and his work with locals in Greenville. The argument that it's much more than food, it's about equality. People need, they need pharmacies, they need merchandise, they need hardware. Um, And if they live far from it and they don't have access to a vehicle, then it makes very difficult for them to obtain just the basic necessities. They've been asking for nicer, more wholesome retail for a long time. Many of these, the neighborhoods that I studied were complaining for decades about the inundation of liquor stores, pawn shops, payday lenders, what I call bad retail. Uh, And instead they want a good retail, which is retail that is run by and for the community, for community residents. So residents can feel like they have a say. And so that is what they're really fighting for, uh, what I call retail equality. However, the argument for retail equality is oftentimes not taken very well by the public. Because the way that people see the issue is simple, that those who want retail equality are complaining because they don't have the same amenities in their neighborhood, and that what they should really be worried about is their health. Which is why the concept of food desert was really compelling for advocates and people in power. They're fighting against retail inequality, but that really didn't have a whole lot of traction in American politics until the food desert concept came along. So it really picked up speed in the late 2000s. The Obama administration put it into a federal program called the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, which was subsidizing hundreds of millions of dollars to install grocery stores and farmers markets and community gardens all across the country. And I argue that the healthy food aspect, which is great, and that's what neighborhood residents wanted all along, but they wanted more than just that. But they needed to frame their struggle in the language of healthy food in order to recruit these really powerful, what I call foodie allies, that these food movements that were interested in organic food, sustainable food, food insecurity, non-GMO food, food justice, they all 
were similarly interested in infusing higher quality, healthy foods into these neighborhoods. And so it was a unique moment in time when their interests aligned, that these neighborhoods found that people were really ready to listen to them, although they've been complaining about this for quite a long time. It became about reframing the debate. If those struggling most were able to reframe their issues and requests around healthy food, then maybe they'd get to their ultimate goal of retail equality at the same time. But again, the issue is complex, because then you begin adding in terms such as food insecurity, which, again, I'm sure you've all heard of. Can we talk about the difference between food deserts and food insecurity? Mm-hmm. Because I, before reading your book a little bit, I didn't really understand that they stem from different causes. I feel like they're often yeah. intertwined a lot. Well, they are intertwined uh, for a specific set of people. Mm-hmm. So food deserts, according to the USDA, and their definition has changed a little bit over time, but we can think of as a geographic area with high rates of poverty, low rates of vehicular access, and the lack of a grocery store. Now, the actual geographic range of this, in the beginning, the USDA focused on urban areas uh, with a one-mile radius. So if you had to travel more than a mile, for someone who can walk pretty quickly, that's 20, 25 minutes, but for someone with mobility problems, you're getting into a half hour, an hour-long round trip to go get grocery stores, as well as lugging bags, that can be quite difficult. The USDA said for rural areas, they said a 10-mile radius because we assume that if you live in a rural area, you must have access to transportation or some means of movement just in order to survive. But if it gets beyond 10 miles, it really cuts into your gas budget and that makes things quite difficult. The USDA has since revised that. They have new terms of very low access, so a half-mile radius. You can toggle up and down. The poverty line are people at the poverty line, slightly above the poverty line, 200% 200% of the poverty line, which is, mm-hmm. makes double the amount of what we consider the poverty line. And so that's, that's the food desert terminology, or you could call it food apartheid. You're just mm-hmm. trying to areas without grocery stores. So like we talked about earlier, food deserts are really a reference to your geographic location and what sorts of retail fall within that geographic location. Food insecurity is the state of not having clear knowledge of when your next meal is going to come. But not just any meal, not all calories are created equally, calories that are safe, nutritious, and culturally appropriate. So you don't want to make somebody force them to eat something that goes against their religious beliefs just because they're poor. And so, but food insecurity really gets at, you know, you may have lots of calories available to you, but they're so unhealthy, or maybe they're soon to be perished items, that doesn't really count as a quality diet. So food insecurity is sort of the state of precarity of I don't know when my next meal is going to come or at the beginning of the month I kind of know I can go shopping and I know I can buy food and we're good for the next week mm-hmm. but the end of the month is really kind of a black curtain to me I don't really know what lies on the other side mm-hmm. and so where food insecurity and food deserts intersect is that for some people who are living just at the poverty line they may be able to make all of their meals for the month. They may be able to feed themselves and their family with their given set of resources. But any extra expense can sort of tip them into a downward spiral and put them into food insecurity. And so if they had to travel an extra mile or an extra two miles, that may cut into their food budget, those transportation costs. Let's say they they may be able to catch a bus to a grocery store, but if that grocery store closes down, then that bus route doesn't work for them anymore. And now they need to to get a ride or pay someone to, to drive them to the store. And those transportation costs cut into their food budget and that can 
that can make a, a trip to the grocery store untenable. So someone could be food secure, but yet if they lose food access, that can cause them to become food insecure. Mm-hmm. And so to put a grocery store in a poor neighborhood really helps people who are right at that poverty line where an extra mile really does make a difference because people who are food insecure who are living in abject poverty, that they're dependent upon food pantries and soup kitchens on a day-to-day basis, you can put a grocery store next to them and it doesn't really make a difference. It just kind of adds insult to injury. They're closer to stuff that they can't afford to buy. And people who are well above the poverty line that have resources, that have cars, that have disposable income, a nearby grocery store is nice. It may add some convenience, but they may work on another side of town that's next to a grocery store, or they may travel as part of their daily chores for for work or worship or family. They may cross paths with a number of grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And so about the majority, a slight majority of Americans bypass their nearest grocery store anyway for a variety of different reasons, just because our, life are com- our lives are complex. And so I think that's to focus on those people that an extra, a little extra distance can really uh, impact their food budget. That's where food deserts and food insecurity intersect. Mm-hmm. So how did those issues impact the people in Greenville that you've seen? Right. So in Greenville, um, we've seen a few grocery stores come in. Uh, recently, I don't know if I guess this is a local podcast, so people will know. So, for example, we've gotten two Harris Teeters that have moved in, but they both moved into uh, fairly affluent areas of town. There's one that has moved onto Augusta Road, and the, the census tract in which it is located has an, a median household income of $110,000 a year. And so, those folks uh, benefit uh, in terms of convenience for a store, but they didn't necessarily need a store because they had the means to travel. Not, not by, say, every single person. That's the median household income. Of course, there's people living in poverty in that uh, census tract, but not as many. Conversely, other sides of town, uh, largely the west side of town, has lost some grocery stores. My studies began well, mostly in about 2014 when there was a small uh, Bilo, which is a small grocery store uh, that has since gone out of business. They closed, and then that made, the neighborhood was 1.1 miles away from a grocery store. And by closing that, it it made the nearest one nearly two miles away. Mm. Not impossible, but became impractical for some residents. And so they had to go elsewhere. So if you're just looking for the geographic location of where supermarkets and grocery stores locate, they generally go to places with high population density and wealth. And so that's why poor neighborhoods are really kind of left out. They still have the same needs for healthy food, but they just don't have the collective buying power to support that business, and they can't recruit it on their own terms. Mm -hmm. So kind of going back to retail inequality, I got that one of the main points from your book was that people just want the option. They just want equality, like like you say, retail equality. The option to buy nicer things, even though it may not be what they want, And I feel like that's that whole conversation about the health aspect of it is that just because you're putting these options in front of people, it doesn't mean that's going to be what they want to buy, even if that is the option. So what would you say to people who ask, like, well, what are these nicer options? Mm -hmm. How are these options going to be sustained in a community long term? Well, it's. So the, the value of grocery stores is in terms of the food options they provide, as well as the other goods and services that they provide, mm-hmm. as well as they, they serve a symbolic function. They serve a function of indicating to others that this is a neighborhood that has value, that has worth, um, that people care about where they live, they take care of it. Uh, this is a, a nice part of town. 
if you can think back to the last time you drove into a new city that you had never been to before and maybe you came in at night and everyone's asleep and there's no one's on no one is on the street and they're walking there's no one the sidewalks are clear mm-hmm. and you don't know this place and you've never been here before uh, and you're trying to get a feel for the place and so what do you do you look at the storefronts as you're coming in what are the kinds of goods and services being sold here are there coffee shops cafes uh, yoga studios plant stores and stuff like that or do all the businesses have bars on the window and seemingly lots of uh, security involved fluorescent lighting you know ugly signage and stuff like that you're going through town again you may not have any intention to buy anything during that trip or you're just passing through but it gives you a sense of that place dr cobb is absolutely right here if nothing else the retail in an area can tell you so much as you pass by Because we're human, we first take things in at face value. And I think we can all agree that if you care about your neighborhood and the area you live in, you're proud to call it home, then you want that feeling displayed for the rest of the world to see. But that isn't always the case. Now, the people who live behind Main Street, two or three blocks behind it in residential areas, they know what kind of stuff is being sold on their Main Street or their commercial corridor. They know how outsiders see them. And when their commercial corridor is filled with payday lenders, liquor stores, pawn shops, stuff like that, they don't feel represented by those businesses. They want nice and wholesome goods and services sold in their neighborhood. They just may not have the collective buying power to support those businesses. And also, because of the complexities of their lives, their current shopping habits are already kind of locked in. Again, so let's say they have a job and their job is next to or close to a Walmart. Shopping at that Walmart before and after work becomes a very convenient option for them. You may bring a nice grocery store on their side of town. It's close, but it's slightly out of way. And maybe it costs a slight bit more. And residents will still appreciate it because they feel like, well, that's a grocery store. That's a nice business. People will see that for what it is. Now outsiders see our community as we see ourselves. Mm. And I I will shop at that store because I still want to kind of do good and show support for the neighborhood. I've interviewed people who were in abject poverty and struggling to to make their meals for the whole month. And they still give away food. Like, I mean, even the poorest among us still want to donate and feel virtuous and help others. But to shop there on a regular basis would cost more, take extra time, just basically not work for them. And so it's this kind of bind that they're in, is that the complexities of their life lock them into a certain pattern of where they shop. They want better retail options in their neighborhood. That doesn't necessarily mean they want to reshape and change how they shop. Um, They just want better investment in their community. Mm -hmm. They want to go to businesses and say, do you want to make our community a better place or do you just want to make money? Mm -hmm. And so they want the prior. And they want nice businesses, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the capacity to reshape their dietary practices, their shopping habits, and stuff like that. Because all those things are locked into what I call their everyday realities Mm. um, that they can't easily change. So from the outside, it seems like a simple fix, right? Just put those stores in these neighborhoods. Well, not so much. A lot of these things have been attempted in Greenville. Grocery stores in particular have tried to move in and unfortunately end up closing because of what Dr. Cobb said. The communities just don't have enough collective buying power to sustain those businesses. Yet. 
do you think there ever will be a grocery store who can move in and will be able to be sustained? Or obviously this issue is very complex mm-hmm. and it has to do with wages and like living and yeah. all of these different things. But where do you see that going? Right. So in the so we coined the term food desert in, in the 90s. In the early 2000s, 2010, between 2010 and 2014, lots of huge large-scale interventions trying to subsidize the placement of grocery stores in poor neighborhoods. And they surveyed people before and after who lived in the neighborhood to see if it was if they were shopping at that new store and if they were shopping and buying healthy items at the at the new store. Now you got to remember that grocery stores and supermarkets sell all sorts of junk food and and unhealthy food. But the the result from that was that putting the stores in those neighborhoods didn't necessarily change the way people ate. And the reason is is that people's diets are also woven into the fabric of their lives. And so. Some people, it's it's healthier to cook from home and to cook from scratch, but some people just can't cook from scratch. They live alone. Um, they're a single parent with a child. They don't have the time. They don't have the energy. The complexities of trying to make uh, a trip to the grocery store followed by a week's worth of home cooking is quite challenging, and most Americans don't actually cook as much as home, at home as they once did 50, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we should stop these kind of interventions. I mean, these neighborhoods deserve wholesome quality retail options, even if they don't yet have the collective buying power and population density to support it. The businesses will eventually come when there's enough people with enough money to support the business. But these businesses are also in the business of staying in business. And so they want to be virtuistic and they want good public relations. So they'll try, but they have a profit margin that's, that's set for them. The basic for-profit retail industry is just not well set to meet the needs of poor neighborhoods. And so I think in the future, I mean, it's got to be kind of a meet-in-the-middle approach. Mm -hmm. We need to help these retail outlets through subsidies, tax incentives, or whatever, to make it slightly more economically viable for them to move into poor neighborhoods, as well as we need to support the poor neighborhoods to build up the population density and wealth through jobs and salaries and income and investment uh, so that they can one day afford to shop at those stores on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet, but the people who live there, uh, it's not their fault that their neighborhoods are in the state that they are. They're the product of these housing and transportation policies that have been in the works for 60, 70 years. Right. These housing and transportation policies come from a long legacy of inherently racist attitudes in Greenville. The mark that racism has left on the city is a lot of the reason why these issues and disparities exist today. Can you speak a little bit about, you kind of did a little bit, but a little bit more about the legacy of racism and the mark that it has on retail inequality today in Greenville? Right. And so if we look at retail inequality today, so areas where you don't have easy access to affordable fresh fruits and vegetables, as well as merchandise and hardware and stuff like that. All that stuff is located largely in large supermarkets, 60,000 square feet, or big box stores that you generally have to drive to. Those types of options were once available in city centers, but a combination of public and private sector policy decisions decided to largely abandon those areas and rebuild in the suburbs which at the time were largely exclusively white. And so you left a bunch of, uh, you left impoverished, concentrated, segregated poverty back in the city center. And that was a product of institutionally racist policies. 
before the Fair Housing Act and uh, the Civil Rights Movement, they were explicitly racist. And then in the aftermath, we stripped the language of race. And, but still, infrastructure spending to build big, wide roads and highways to neighborhoods that are, to suburb, suburban developments that are almost exclusively white, we can see that has unequal consequences in where that money flows. And so we created the retail context of today. And we're still grappling with, the, with those effects. And so I, th- I think that gets it. I can't, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it, I honestly think it boils down to, well, it's so it's so complicated. The legacy of racism in, in America yeah. is so complicated. And I think people sometimes fail to see, myself included, that a lot of the reasons all these disparities exist today is because of yeah. the racism. The disparities, I mean, it it's not exclusively investment, like public investment, but it's public money. Where does it go? Does it go into this neighborhood? Do we build night? Do we fix the streets, fix the potholes, put in streetlights? We widen the sidewalks? Do we offer nice parks and amenities Mm -hmm. or do we build big wide roads and bring city water out to uh, municipalities 20 30 miles away those decisions have consequences and so where the public investment goes property values will rise but we just went through a a 30-year period where we just we disinvested from a number of black neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and by disinvestment i mean we chose not to invest there and we invested elsewhere And the investments into neighborhoods like Southern Side and West Greenville that are sustained are things like a Burger King. In fact, in Chapter 5 of his book, Dr. Cobb talks about his experience attending a community session. It was with a representative from Burger King who wanted to come build there. The reasons the residents didn't want the Burger King there might surprise you, as it did me. But it all comes back to the idea of respect for one's neighborhood and being able to play the game with the way you frame your argument. Yeah, that was interesting. That Burger King is here. I pass by it every day. Um, But I remember that fight very vividly. So the way that the food desert concept has been framed in in media and political debates is that residents are are desperate for healthier options because they are aware of the negative health outcomes that come from being exposed to unhealthy food like fast food, junk food, stuff like that. But again, when I interviewed people, they were upset with their options, but it was bigger than food. It was really just they wanted retail that they felt represented them and their wants and needs. But the same neighborhood residents know that if you say things like health disparities, you can get the attention of politicians and reporters and stuff like that. So we had that fight over that Burger King was about eight, nine years into Uh, the heavy usage of the term food desert in the neighborhood. And so they were all pretty savvy political actors, and they knew that if they wanted to complain about this, a new Burger King, that they needed to say things like obesity or diabetes or hypertension. Some of the residents who were at that meeting who were speaking out, I had interviewed them. I knew everything that we had gone through a food diary. I knew everything they ate in the past month, where they shopped and all that stuff. And I knew that they ate fast food on occasion. Um, They weren't too happy with this Burger King because living next to a fast food outlet is not so pleasant. It's really bright lights. The drive through microphone is really quite loud. People who leave, uh, who go through drive throughs usually aren't invested in the area. They're just driving through. And so they throw litter out their cars and stuff like that. So you're talking trash, lights, noise. But politically, that's not a powerful message in terms of we're worried about our children and higher rates of type 2 diabetes. 
the latter has a really sort of punch and pulls at your heartstrings. Whereas people complaining about noise and lights, it's like, well, you live in a city, you know, there's noise and lights. And so they knew to kind of set aside their practical complaints and to, to play up more of these healthy food concerns because healthy food was one area where their interests aligned with all these other foodie social movements. And so the healthy food frame is a very powerful tool to get movement you know, if you frame something as a public health problem, you, you can start the levers of funding and research at the governmental level. And so they had, they had kind of tapped into this kind of really powerful talking point. And some were politi- savvy political actors, some were less so. But um, they knew that talking about grocery stores was something that got a lot of attention in ways that when before, when they had complained about loitering in front of a liquor store, no one really seemed to care. I think that's really interesting because it's just why is it that that's the way that people have to get attention about their own problems? And then it makes me question, obviously, these issues of hypertension and their children are probably very real issues, but they're not really the things that that on the ground people are really worried about. Well, they're worried about both. They just know that some, you know, health issues get attention and practical quality of life issues in their neighborhood don't get attention. Mm. I mean, quality of life issues, litter, lights, noise, in wealthy neighborhoods, those get a lot of attention yeah. uh, because they already have the political capital and they know um, how to get that attention and help and assistance. But poor or under-resourced neighborhoods don't get that same kind of response. Right. And so they were just desperate for to be have something to say that would to get the attention of uh, outsiders. Mm-hmm. So shifting gears a little bit more towards the sustainability side, mm-hmm. you mentioned several options in your book at the end of solutions that surround a bit more sustainable options, I mm-hmm. think, such as the farms, things like that. When you think of sustainability, what comes to mind? Well, um, I'm a sociologist. So I, when I look at sustainability, a lot of people look at the environmental aspects, but I'm looking uh, as well as the social and economic aspects. So you want communities that are can sustain businesses, that they don't require outside subsidization or tax incentives for a business to thrive. Mm -hmm. Because when those subsidies and tax incentives end, those businesses will go away. That's not a sustainable solution. So it may be the beginning. We help, uh, we encourage and incentivize stores to come in. And then we, as well as prop up the community so that they can afford it. Uh, So one day they can meet in the middle and that can be Mm -hmm. a sustainable solution. As well as Sustainable solutions also need to be resilient ones and that there needs to be a couple of uh, redundancies built into the system, even if it's not the most efficient. If all of America was reliant on one farm and there's something happened with that one farm, then we'd have a problem. But if we distributed, instead of having one farm, we had 10,000 farms, then if one farm collapses, then we have a number of others to to draw from. And the same can be said for uh, retail availability of healthy food. The loss of one grocery store can kill a town. But why is it that there was always just one left to do it? It's because of the business model and the, the slim profit margins and the difficulties of the grocery retail industry uh, that we basically just created a food system that is just not well designed to fit the needs of poor neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So you did say you're a sociologist and you think yeah. in terms of the social foundation mostly, but do you ever consider 
the importance of the environmental aspect as yeah. well in your work? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the primary way I do that is through uh, externalities or sort of the external costs mm-hmm. in terms of we can see that uh, everything has a price in terms of if you're if you when you go to the grocery store and you can buy food that's harvested somewhere, uh, that food is incredibly affordable. I mean, considering the amount of work and right. transportation that went into it. Um, but there's all sorts of things that you're not paying for. So the degradation to that land uh, may not really be felt for another 20, 30 years. But eventually, if that land becomes untenable and you can no longer use it, then that comes at a cost. But it's at a cost 20, 30 years down the line from when I have bought my ground beef. And so those costs, because they're not incorporated into the products that we buy, give us sort of an artificial sense of what is what it really takes to provide this stuff mm-hmm. it's like oh well okay this is affordable i can afford it we seem to be able to grow it it's fine um and we can for the moment but if we can't do it forever just because it's exceeding the ecological capacity of mm-hmm. basically that area then one day we're going to have a price to pay and just because we're not paying it now it doesn't mean we're not going to have to pay it in the future. Mm-hmm. And so we need to kind of prorate that price or just basically divide it up mm-hmm. and start paying it now or just to account for it. Uh, that's one way. The problem with that is that environmental solutions reduce those long-term external costs, but people in poverty need breaks now. They can't afford to pay those long-term costs. They can't even, you know, and so this is where it's tough that the people who are food insecure, they want nice food and they might even want organic food, mm-hmm. but it might just be at a price point that they can't afford. Mm-hmm. And so that's where their interests kind of, they want healthy food, sustainable food activists also want healthy food, but they're coming at it from different directions. Yeah. I do think, I agree, that's the hard part of this this whole topic is that a lot of times sustainable food options are very elitist and they're very expensive and they're not able like not everyone has access to them. Like I mentioned in my first episode that uh, the Saturday morning farmer's market is not realistic for most people. The vegetables are expensive, yeah. it's time consuming, maybe it's far away, things like that. So my definition, it's sustainable food justice. And yeah. you talk about food justice in your book a little bit. Uh-huh. What is your <coughs> definition of food justice? Well, I separate the food desert fight is slightly different from the food justice fight in terms of um, it doesn't, the food desert fight doesn't get into the issues of like the use of the land. Mm -hmm. So food justice, I would see also means like if I live in a place, then I should be able to have access to the food that is grown near me. Or if I work on a farm, I should be able to make wages high enough so that I can actually buy the products that I'm harvesting. So that would fit under the level of food justice. That, that aligns and coincides a little bit with food deserts in terms of, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm working full time and I'm caring for my children, then it, it shouldn't be such a hardship for me able to just basically feed them basic nutritious necessities mm-hmm. and stuff like that. The farmer's market is, it is sustainable, but for a higher income bracket, right. they're willing, those customers are willing to pay a premium. In a sense, they're, they're paying those future costs that you're not having to pay at Walmart. Because if you're going to a farm that's completely organic and sustainable, the land is maybe improving on a year-to-year basis. They're not taxing it in such a way that it's going to exhaust all of its nutrient base and collapse. But those practices to the soil additions and stuff like that that you need and the work you need to do 
is so labor intensive and resource intensive that it brings those prices at a higher cost. If you have a, a customer base willing to pay that cost, then basically they're subsidizing the future of that farm. And that is that is sustainable, but it's just not at a price point that the vast majority of Americans can afford because they just can't afford to pay those future costs. I then asked Dr. Cobb if he could make one change right now in Greenville County where any issues surrounding food exists, what would it be? His answer? Move the bus stop on Whitehorse Road closer to the front door of a Walmart. They have a parking lot that is about a third of a mile long, and it also traverses this really steep downhill and is really hard for folks with low mobility problems. Mm-hmm. It's uniquely situated in that it's a Walmart, but it's a super center. It offers everything that you could possibly want or need, okay? Uh, not the greatest quality, definitely not the best customer service, uh, but it's on a bus line. And that distance from that bus stop to that store causes so many problems for so many people that could be solved so easily by just having the bus reroute into the parking lot and then reroute out. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as simple and practical as it seems, it's not very realistic. As we've learned from Susan and Dr. Cobb, Greenville has a limited transportation system. And according to Dr. Cobb, there are a whole host of other issues of what he calls bureaucratic entanglements, such as Walmart's worry about liability. He advocates for this bus stop change because, simply, the people who shop at Walmart need to have an easier time of it. Going up and down the hill and all the way across the parking lot wears on your body, especially if it's your regular stop for groceries and other goods. And for Dr. Cobb, that's what it's all about. Everyday, practical solutions. Through this podcast and discussions with my advisors Sam and Catherine, we've talked about how we all want to change the world. But truly, what matters most at this moment is on a local level. The next super practical thing that I would like to do is I would like to partner conventionally grown healthy food in dollar store parking lots. Because uh, dollar stores are highly used. Some people say that dollar stores suck up the buying power and make it impossible for a grocery store to, Mm -hmm. to thrive there. I'm not really sure that's the case. If a grocery store came in, they could beat out that dollar store. But dollar stores don't offer any kind of fresh fruits, vegetables, whole cuts of meat. They have a freezer section, a dairy section, and then canned and dried food. But a little tailgate farmer market of conventionally grown stuff bought in bulk that was set up in the parking lot would bring people to that dollar store because they still need toilet paper and you can't get toilet paper at the farmer's market. And those two businesses don't compete with each other. They don't sell products that the others do. They would generate more. You know, one plus one could equal three in terms of it would have an additive effect of bringing people to the store. So those are two very practical things. The next thing I would like to do is it's so difficult for families or especially people living alone to cook for themselves. Um, and home cooking is, is one pathway to healthy eating. I'd really like to, to find ways to get people to, to be able to work together and to buy food in bulk and then collectively prepare it like a meal prep. So this is uh, a meal prep cooperative. It could be based off of currently existing social groups like Bible studies or uh, neighborhood associations or whatever. Um, so it would require some grants and subsidies to upfit some kitchens to get them up to um, nutritional standards and safety standards. But I think those are like three kind of practical things. Of course, we're going to fight for grocery stores and there's some small incentives out there. But when there's enough population and there's enough wealth, the stores will come. Yeah. 
I think the practical answers are very important to consider. Like yeah. we always talk about this big fight for the, you know, all these big things, but in reality, the issues are happening today. Yeah. And those Somebody, are small things that can be fixed. Yeah. I really like the farmer's mark the farmer's market idea in the dollar store. I think that's genius. Like you said, they're not competing against each other. If you can already make your way to a dollar store, which is where maybe the majority of your goods are coming from, why not put fresh fruits and vegetables out there? So, like I've mentioned in my previous episodes, I like to tell the people I'm interviewing my definition of sustainable food justice and ask them if they have anything that they would change or add. Again, my definition is equitable access to food that is culturally appropriate, sustainably grown or sourced, and helps afford people a good quality of life. What Dr. Cobb had to say about it is really important. Yeah. I mean, that's the dream. <laughs> no, I mean, it would. It, that would be a... It would be sustainable and it would be a food just. I mean, it's the only, and I, I, I don't really have anything to add. It's just there's some people who are priced out of that right, right now. Now, that's okay because there's some people with plenty of money who are willing to operate along that model mm-hmm. and willing to pay an extra premium that could be used to pay it forward to help people who can't afford. So I will pay more for this healthy vegetable so that you can offer it on a sliding scale to someone who has less. So it's kind of like if your own definition is it has does it have its own donut hole in terms of like are there people who just aren't able to access it at some point. But once you get to it, mm-hmm. then it could just be a space that you could live in where all your meats can be met in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. But it's just that's kind of where food justice and food the food desert fight, you know, they both want better, healthier and affordable options. And they both want, both want better and healthier options that are better for people and the planet. But the folks who are in the food desert fight, as opposed to the food justice fight, want more affordable options yeah. that sometimes that current in their current mode of production aren't as great for the planet. Mm. I think that's the challenge with my definition has been trying to include everyone. Because part of what I like about the donut model yeah. is that I think it's inherently oriented towards social justice because you're trying to include everyone, mm-hmm. making sure people's needs are met. But... Obviously, that's a very big challenge. Yeah. It's hard to concisely put in. Yeah, that's okay. In addition to what I'd already asked him and what we'd already talked about, I was curious. If he were in my shoes, what would he have asked that I didn't? I would probably, and I, I'm not going to give you the whole answer because it's okay. like two chapters of the book, but it's like, why is it that cooking is so hard for Americans? Mm. Um, and it's not because it's something, as a college student, you're not you haven't faced that challenge yet. Right. You know, even if you're, I don't know if you're on the meal plan or not, but if you're at, and you're trying to cook, you can understand like, I just can't do it tonight or we need to get something that's reheatable. It's a huge challenge. Or order out and stuff like that. Yeah. But you have a number of other people, like you're still living with other people. And so, and they're your age and they have similar tastes and they have similar work schedules and stuff like that. And so you have a lot of stuff that could make it work. But as you get out of college, and then you get into families or you get into households where you have a diversity of ages and tastes and work schedules and all that stuff, mm-hmm. then it becomes even more difficult mm-hmm. because it's you and your friends could say, well, we're just too tired. We've got too much going on. We're just going to order out. Or you could say, look, let's make a big meal. And you all could because you all kind of like the same thing right. and you're all there and you've got the equipment and all that stuff. That doesn't happen anymore really after you leave Furman I mean you'll have maybe some group living and when you're still young but you know it's 
it's tough. Single parents, they got to cook something different for their kid. Their kid believes that they deserve chicken tenders and they don't have to eat whatever the adult is wearing. So the adult has to cook two meals. It's really inconvenient. And uh, so just the everyday realities of what it what it takes to cook a meal from scratch on a consistent basis is something that people like they sidestep for the food desert debate but the whole point of food of supermarkets is that they're the one entity that can provide one-stop shopping to cook from home because it provides you everything you need now you can still buy frozen lasagnas in in a grocery store but if you wanted to cook from scratch and you and you don't have a grocery store then that becomes really difficult but if you do, it makes it possible. But just because it's possible, there may be all sorts of other mm. pitfalls that are keeping you from being able to do it. Yeah. I do think that that's one thing people my age take advantage of or have taken advantage of all my life is for me, I was fortunate enough for my parents to be able to come home and be like want to cook a meal every night. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it might be the same thing twice a week. And I'm like, why are we eating the same things twice a week? When really yeah. that is extremely privileged yeah. attitude of me. Yeah. Um, that's that's okay. just the way I grew up. And like that's fine. But it is hard. I feel like people don't think about that enough. Well, it's it's not rocket science. I mean, it's just yeah. everyday practicalities. It just, it's something that we need. We kind of take it for granted. Like, oh, you bring the grocery store and people eat healthier. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, healthier eating requires more than just wanting. Yeah. You know. Do you have any final thoughts? No. Uh, it sounds like you're on an interesting journey. So thank you. I'm interested to see how it turns out. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank I you for really, having me. Really appreciate you taking the time. If there's anywhere anyone listening could find you online, do you have any plugs? Uh, it is www.retailinequalityoneword.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Dr. Cobb's book has shared with the world a new, insightful look into the food desert debate. He's uncovered an important aspect, that the people closest to the issue must actively reframe their problems to get any attention. When thinking about sustainable food justice after this conversation, I pulled the pieces of the puzzle apart. And while their strongest form is to work in conjunction with one another to create the whole puzzle, it helps to analyze each piece with its unique edges, shape, and size to see if it fits into the bigger picture. So what is justice exactly? Well, my conversation with Susan France told me to amplify the voices of those closest to the issue. My conversation with Dr. Cobb emphasized this even more. How am I supposed to understand these issues? In all honesty, I've never lived it. I've never been fearful that my next meal wouldn't come. And while I can understand this issue to a certain extent, I cannot speak about it in terms of lived experience. Justice means providing people that which they deserve, a just treatment. All this to say that the book Retail Inequality opened my eyes to the complexities of everyday life of people experiencing food insecurity and simply People who want both themselves and their neighborhood to be treated with dignity, respect, and as much equality as the neighborhood three blocks over. If you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Cobb, go visit his website, www.retailinequality.com. I'll have it linked in the description. Next time, I interview Melissa Fair. She works at Furman's Institute for the Advancement of Community Health on why data and evidence-based work is important as well as the correlations between food security, health, and socioeconomic status. Don't forget to follow the Shy Institute on Instagram, at Sustainable Furman. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Caroline Singleton, and this has been Upstate Anecdotes. Until next time.